0: Welcome to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. With over 150 years of experience and deep industry knowledge, Webber Wenzel is the leading full-service law firm on the African continent.
1: It goes without saying that cybercrime is always a threat for businesses and governments. But the threat has escalated during this COVID-19 lockdown, when people are now working from home, and being isolated has become the new normal. Cybercrime surged by 33% in the first quarter of this year, according to Mimecast's 100 Days of Coronavirus report, and particularly in February and March when COVID-19 lockdowns started. Just in those two months, there was a 46% increase in spam and a 385% growth in malware in sub-Saharan Africa. Cybercrime is potentially very costly for businesses. The 2017 WannaCry ransomware attack cost an estimated hundreds of millions of dollars for businesses around the world, including South Africa. And if business couldn't get any worse for the airline industry, just four days ago, the budget airline EasyJet was hacked and the personal details of 9 million customers were accessed. The credit card details of 2,200 customers were obtained. Because of COVID-19 pandemic, the fear is that the information will be used for online scams. My name is Lisa Swain, and I'll be your host for this special episode of WebWenzel Legal Insights. In this podcast, several Webwensel experts discuss several issues relevant to business in managing the risks associated with cybercrime, including necessary security measures, privacy and poppy, insurance, and the legal consequences of a breach of data. Before delving into the legal stuff, let's first look at the organizational and structural risks issues around cybercrime. Warren Hero, and his surname is certainly appropriate, is Weber Wenzel's chief information officer and former chief technology officer at Microsoft. Warren, a couple of questions for you, if I may. What are the basic security aspects that organizations must consider in the current context?
2: Hey Lisa, thank you for the introduction. Thank you for the questions. I aspire to my surname. I think the place that we would have to start at is to understand how the threat landscape is changing. Uh, We've seen this movement from individual actors to the nation states acting in this space. We've seen this migration, especially with individuals working remotely. Lots of type of attacks where individuals try and remotely take over uh, people's species. Also in the context of sub-Saharan Africa, we still see this difference between the encounter rate, which is very similar to the globe, to the entire world, versus the clean rate, Um, you know, specifically in sub-Saharan Africa, and especially in South Africa, we see this orientation in the clean rate of PCs much higher, almost double uh, the global rate. And so we have to start thinking about how we mitigate some of this, and we start to see in terms of the practice amongst geeks, that identity is the new security parameter. Uh, So as we think about how to use identity uh, to improve remote working, also augment that with multi-factor authentication, and then how we recruit devices into our networks uh, and not just uh, uh, the normal devices like PCs, but also IoT devices, And then fundamentally, we have to think about the data and how we think about what data to protect and the extent to which we need to protect the crown jewels uh, from the paperclips.
1: Thank you, Warren. So what are some of the key IT building blocks that need to be considered in a risk-adjusted approach?
2: Yeah, absolutely, Riza. The first thing is to understand that because of this, this issue that we have around the clean rate, education, education, education is absolutely at the core of what we do. Uh, so we have found in River Wenzel that just making sure that people are appropriately educated, uh, I mean, right now, I mean, according to Mindcast, we see that only one in almost 4,000 clicks uh, on potential phishing attacks. The other aspect that we need to think about is incident response. And we, we follow very much the NIST guidelines which is about detecting intrusions, protecting against those intrusions, and responding as we as soon as we possibly can, and trying to get those mean time to responses down quite significantly. Can't overestimate still the value of VPNs and firewalls. Uh, and then fundamentally, what we are starting to do is to implant, is to use cognitive services or artificial intelligence. Uh, to then all our endpoints to then understand the attack vectors and then to start to mitigate against those attack vectors by using artificial intelligence.
1: That's just far too complicated for me. All I know is that we are adequately educated at Weber Wenzel. Thanks so much, Warren. Now, ideally, one doesn't want to manage a breach when we preferably not want to have a breach at all or to be able to stop it in its tracks before anything happens. Related to this, a couple of questions for our privacy and regulatory expert, Carl Blum. Carl, what steps are you legally required to take to prevent a data breach? And related to this, how do we manage these obligations in the context of employees working from home and or using their own devices, especially relevant in the time of COVID-19 that we're now in? Hi,
3: Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. So I think the starting point is to break it down to what am I required to do by law? In this case, the Protection of Personal Information Act, which we refer to as Poppy, And then also, what are we required to do under any contracts we may have with our customers or our suppliers? So under Poppy, it's important for us to put in place organizational and technological security safeguards. So Warren has very nicely set out where our minds should be when considering technical safeguards. But when we consider organizational safeguards, I mean, in pre-COVID times, we're talking about now watching what we say when we talk around the water cooler or what we say in a, at the canteen. Given that we are now mostly working from home, we have to now start thinking, well, when I'm on a conference call with a client uh, and there's someone else in the room, must I be careful what I say so they don't overhear me or I don't accidentally divulge any sort of information. So an organization needs to make sure that both the technical and organizational sides are addressed under poppy. And this is normally done by way of an employee policy that clearly explains to the employees what they must do, how they report a data breach if it happens, so these things can be escalated and handled correctly. Then just briefly to touch on the contractual points, it may well be that sophisticated clients and suppliers will have in their agreement certain safeguards and requirements that customers or that they expect their service providers or their customers to implement. And so an organization must be mindful as to what those requirements are as well and make sure those feed through into their employee policies and that their employees are aware of those requirements.
1: Thanks, Carl. What is the current status of Poppy? being the Protection of Personal Information Act, which has been in the wings for an enormous amount of time now. Do we need to be compliant with Poppy? And if so, what steps do we have to take in order to comply?
3: Yes, Poppy's very much been the sword of Damocles that's been hanging over all of our heads for a number of years. But um, in effect, Poppy has the status of law and has been passed by our parliament. Uh, It's important to note, though, that Poppy has a 12-month grace period so the president will declare a date, and then there's a 12-month period for all of us to start implementing our procedures and making sure that come the end of that 12-month date, we achieve compliance with Poppy's provisions. And that date hasn't been announced yet. We'd expected that date to actually be announced end of March, early April of this year, but one can assume that the president's been occupied by other matters around the COVID you know, pandemic and not been considering the poppy aspects uh, too closely at this time. But really, you're only going to become liable for your conduct under poppy after that 12-month period has elapsed. Now, this is an important thing to be mindful of, is that poppy doesn't only apply to information you gain after its commencement, but also information you already have. So you won't be liable for a data breach under poppy that happened a year ago, for example. But if you have records that are 20 years old, and once poppy's in effect, you accidentally disclose this information, that information unlawfully, it may well be that you're then liable under poppy once it's in effect.
1: So in other words, Carl, something that I've always thought, don't wait until it's the end of the period start protecting yourself under poppy right now start putting into place all the measures because when poppy does come into play if you haven't prepared yourself properly, if you haven't put all the safety measures into place, it's going to be too late and there's just going to be too much to be done. Would you agree with that?
3: 100% Lisa, it's it's a big job. I mean, if you think about how much information in today's times businesses have at their disposal, um, how much information we're all exposed to and just how broadly that information is disseminated throughout a company, it, to try and complete this process from cradle to grave within 12 months is an impossible task. So we always advise clients to start that process now. One, because you'll be compliant with Poppy when it's in effect. And two, because now the market expects that of responsible service providers and people who deal with information. There's a level of customer trust that is associated with people who treat data correctly. And we always advise clients to try and achieve those ideals.
1: Worst case scenario for a business. The preemptive measures have failed and there's a breach. So this. us talk about managing that breach with our crisis and reputation expert who needs no introduction, but I'll do it anyway, Dario Miller. Dario, what are the consequences for companies who suffer a cyber breach? There are obviously legal consequences, but there's also reputational consequences. Can you talk us through these?
0: Yes, indeed, Lisa. As you say, um, there are of course legal consequences and, and these will become more severe when Poppy fully comes into force. But for many corporations, and especially the large ones, it's not the maximum fine under poppy um, that, in my experience, will cause CEOs to lose sleep at night. Rather, it's the reputational harm that the breach can cause to your business. You know, if customers and suppliers and others lose trust in your business and they think that you play fast and loose with with uh, private information, confidential information, you effectively are toast in the market. Um, the breach, therefore, becomes an existential threat. The incentive to take all the reasonable steps that you can to prevent these breaches is not only a legal compliance incentive, but actually because it's business critical to do so.
1: We see in the media um, that where companies have gone into liquidation, have become insolvent, not because of the financial result of a cyber attack, but because of the reputational um, risk that, it, that the cyber attack has created for the companies. Dario, are, are companies obliged to prevent cyber breach?
0: Companies and in particular boards um, have a legal obligation to take reasonable steps, Lisa, to guard against cyber breaches occurring. Um, But of course, the reality about data breaches and cyber breaches is that they often are perpetrated by sophisticated criminal syndicates. So sometimes no matter how reasonably you've acted, a breach may still occur. Um, But the important point is that to avoid legal liability, but also to ensure that you have the moral high ground when it comes to reputational consequences um, with your customers and other affected persons. The important thing is that you must do the things that Carl and Warren were speaking about earlier. You know, um, I use the analogy with clients of um, a supermarket. You know, The duty is to ensure that you have a reasonable system in place in a supermarket to clean up spilt milk so that customers don't slip and fall. Um, That doesn't mean you will always be able to stop the milk from spilling. It doesn't mean you'll always be able to clean it up right away. But provided you have a system in place um, which is designed to minimize these risks, the law will forgive a breach that might have slipped through the cracks. And um, and similarly, you will have the moral high ground if you are able to point to all these these steps you've taken um, in public or with your stakeholders if a breach occurs.
1: Following on that, in your experience, once there has been a cyber breach, what are the issues that are critical? for CEOs of companies to deal with?
0: Well, Lisa, it's a very important question, and, and, and often it's it's uh, not something that um, CEOs are well-trained to do. But I think the first step is that you need a crisis response team um, that is in place and that you can access immediately that a breach has occurred. Of course, your external and your internal legal advisors should be part of that multidisciplinary team. So should IT experts, um, communications experts, et cetera. Um, and you need to assemble that team very swiftly. Um, Then I think once you've um, taken advice and investigated the breach and the the causes, the extent, whether it's still going on, how you can mitigate it, um, one of the first things you need to do to come out of the crisis is to, obviously within your contractual limits, be as transparent as possible with stakeholders um, and engage those who are impacted by the breach. And in fact, Lisa in a, in a poppy world, when when poppy fully comes into force, you will have no option but to in fact inform the information regulator of the breach and to inform the data subjects of the of the breach within a reasonable time of the breach occurring so uh, it 's no question of trying to sweep this under the carpet. Um, once Poppy comes into force, there will be that duty to if you like, blow the whistle on yourself um, and and, uh, and and take those steps so yes, within contractual limits and subject to advice you 've got to tell your stakeholders what 's happened what you 're doing about it. Um, you know an investigation with a law firm is always a good idea because you then also have legal privilege which um, which would protect the the advice that is given in relation to the breach. There may be external IT suppliers um, who haven't um, done what they were supposed to do contractually and that's been part of the cause. And you might need to file notices to, um, to effectively start a dispute resolution process in that context insurers would need to be notified. But the main thing is, from a CEO's perspective, you've got to treat it as a crisis. Uh, You've got to treat it like a crisis because it is a crisis. Uh, And and you have to have that team ready and on speed speed dial um, so that you can make the right decisions going forward.
4: Thank you,
1: Dara. That's an enormous amount to consider and I'm very glad I'm not a CEO. When the Giza bursts at home and there's a flood of water, We're all very grateful to have insurance and we all hope that we have the right insurance and enough insurance. Taking us through some of the cyber insurance related issues is our insurance law expert, Kim Roo. Hi, Kim.
5: Hi, Lisa. Kim,
1: what are some of the reasons for the sudden increase in cyber risk
5: during the global lockdowns Well, Lisa, I think there are a number of reasons, but um, I've chosen to just highlight probably five of the top reasons that immediately spring to mind. I think the most obvious reason is that we've got a lot more people working from home. So that means the normal perimeter defense of the corporation is no longer in place. And companies now have to rely on what we call the home security of of the individual employees, which may not be as good as the firewalls, firewalls of the corporation. The second reason is that going into lockdown, I think corporates were a lot more focused Focused on connectivity as opposed to security. So with the Russian urgency of getting everyone online, some of the normal security protocols may have been overlooked. Thirdly, we've seen a lot of situations where we've got sharing of devices. We've got school children who are now operating from home. And a lot of times these children need to get their homework or their lessons online. And they're using their parents' corporate devices to get those lessons. Fourthly, we've got what we call an infodemic. So the COVID-19 pandemic has created what the World Health Organization has termed an infodemic. People are being bombarded with more and more information, some of it accurate, some of it not. But that becomes easy bait for the hackers. Although we no longer fall for the usual scam of your uncle in Nigeria has passed away and left you millions and click on this link, what we're seeing now is that these scammers have become a lot more creative. So an email from your insurer, for example, or your medical aid, where they say, here's some updated information on what your policies will cover, is a lot more attractive and a lot more likely to get people to click on those links. And then, of course, firstly, we've got a much higher increased exposure time. People are not able to go out, exercise, travel as they used to. So we're seeing people spending a lot more time on their devices and thereby increasing the risk of attacks.
1: Well, I certainly have got square eyes during lockdown. Do cyber insurance policies cover cyber attacks if they occur at our homes, our employees' homes, rather than in the workplace? Because very important, many of us are working at home amidst COVID-19. So as you've just said, there are these risks. Are we covered?
5: So Lisa, cyber attacks are generally not location specific. They happen from anywhere and the the attackers, they're usually not local. So the fact that people are working from home as opposed to working in the office shouldn't actually matter. But one does need to check your policy very carefully because the policy could have specific conditions relating to cover. So for example, a policy may have a condition that the user's passwords must be must be changed on a regular basis, and there might be a time period that's built into that policy. For example, every 30 days, the user's passwords must be changed. Now, in order for users to change their passwords, they may need to come into the office to do that. With lockdown and users working from home, that might not be possible. So, you may have a situation where the IT department decides that they're going to extend the period of time for which the the password is valid to 60 days or even 90 days, um, depending on how long the lockdown goes on for. Now, that might be all jolly fine for purposes of connectivity, but as I said, one of the reasons for the increase in, in the risk is this balancing of connectivity versus security. So, increasing the time period that the password is valid might actually invalidate the insurance policy, which may have a condition that the passwords must be changed every 30 days. So, it is very important that the policy wording and conditions be checked very carefully. Thanks, Kim. What steps can companies take to ensure better
1: responses if they experience a cyber attack?
5: Well, I think, Lisa, besides obviously equipping the IT department with whatever tools they need, so the best firewalls, competitive antiviruses, anti-spam packages, it's also very important that we have proper user training and user response. So if a user gets compromised, the IT team needs to know immediately. And we need to know, is there a system in place to notify that IT team? Do we have an IT, um, a a cyber attack hotline that all the staff know who they can contact. And the emails may be down. Do we have WhatsApp groups that can can then be contacted to say there's been an attack? The IT team will eventually find out that something's happened once the documents start getting corrupted, but that's too late. We want them to know as soon as possible. So it's really important that the staff know the procedures and even more so when we've got situations where they're working from home. Other things that need to be emphasized is the regular response training. It's no good just having a once-off session once a year um, and then everything that is learned in that session is forgotten weeks later. And this is really in time for companies to send out those mailers to staff saying, be aware of this, consider this, think about what you're clicking on and just that regular updating and regular training. Kim,
1: the steps that you mentioned, you know, your training and your systems and your updating and your continuous training, are those steps that insurance companies expect us, as insured entities and businesses, to take for us to to be covered under our policies? Or alternatively, if we don't have systems in place and if we haven't taken all of these steps and we haven't trained, could that prejudice us in terms of cover?
5: These are very much so, and in. in some instances, the, it's actually these steps are actually written into the policies. So there may be a requirement to have certain number of hours of training, um, and uh, staff members may need to actually complete the training and sign certificates to say that they've completed the training. That might be written into the policy. If it's not written into the policy, then there's always that overriding obligation on an organisation and on an insured to take all the reasonable steps to prevent loss and to prevent the risk. So a reasonable step of ensuring that your staff is adequately trained and that there are response procedures in place, it would be expected by an insurer. I think for for a a company to just rely on the fact that they've got cyber insurance and put no steps and, and preventative measures in place is a huge risk for them if they were to try and put the claim under their policies.
1: Thanks so much, Kim. That's really interesting. Thank you, Lisa. Also, following on the insurance related theme, Caroline Theodosio, our insurance expert and insurance law expert, is with us today. Caroline, can you add some practical insight into the insurance side of cyber? cybercrime. What type of insurance can businesses obtain to cover themselves against the risks of cyber
4: attacks? Thanks, Lisa. Generally, insurance for cyber can be obtained in a number of ways. So the best and most useful for businesses would be a specific standalone cyber insurance policy. And generally, those policies would provide comprehensive cover. They tend to be industry-specific. And many of the brokers would tailor policies to deal with the particular industry or insured in question. So in a standalone type of policy, you would expect that they would get cover for all of the different portions of the breach. So you would have the initial breach response which would cover you for a limited um, initial period of time where you would have a team that would come in and assess that breach. You would then have continuing cover, assuming that the policy responds to deal with notification obligations to the regulator, to deal with any liability to the regulator, which we don't yet know about, to deal with the costs of restoring or repairing the insured system so that they can get up and running. There would then also be separate cover for business interruption for the amount of time whilst those insured systems were down. There would then be add-on things such as management of the reputational issues, notification to clients, to the press, to employees, um, and those all come at quite a significant cost. And then finally, there would be liability cover for third parties that might follow as a result of the breach. The other way of doing this, of course, is to get a cyber extension to an existing policy. This would often be found, for example, in an electronic equipment type policy. Um, Interestingly, here you would look at uh, industries such as aviation, shipping. We don't always realize that planes and ships run very much on computer Um, equipment, which can be hacked. And those policies might have an extension or an ability to add on a cyber component. Um, This also happens in the construction industry. Um, And then the other one, I suppose more importantly, is um, a directors and officers type policy where you may need that cover in addition to the standalone because the liability of directors may not be included in the standalone policy. So you would need to ensure that whatever cover is in place for them extends to include cyber.
1: Thank you, Caroline. I suppose many companies don't realize, and you see it in the media, that a lot of victims of cyber attacks blame the directors of companies and blame the boards of companies because cyber risk and cybersecurity is something that is a board's responsibility. So it would be I suppose it would be hugely important then to get an ex- a cyber extension to cover directors and officers against this kind of risk.
4: Absolutely, Lisa.
1: Caroline, what is the difference between cyber cover and the cover that you get for computer crimes?
4: A very good question, Lisa. It's one that is often causes some confusion in the market. So computer crime cover is intended to cover fraud that is committed through electronic means by someone who's not an employee. Um, And it relates to, for example, somebody sending an email to a company which purports to change account details for payments to a third party. Um, That in itself is simply a fraud and it is committed by using a computer. Typically it's, it's a direct loss of money to the company and there is no hacking or data breach as such as a result. So cyber insurance is intended to cover data breaches um, and restoration following the breach, cyber extortion and various consequences, those uh, type of, of claims rather than the straightforward historic fraud that we all used to know and understand.
1: Thanks so much, Kara. that's cleared that one up. Once the attack is managed and hopefully managed effectively, mitigating the risk and maintaining reputations, what are the next steps, if any? A couple of key questions related to legal recourse that can be taken after a cyber breach has occurred are going to be asked by me from our dispute resolution expert, Priyash Dyer. Hello,
6: Priyash. Hello, Lisa. Thank you for having me uh, participate in this podcast with you. It's an absolute privilege. Pleasure.
1: Priyash, what legal recourse is available to
6: companies affected by a cyber breach? Thank you, Lisa. Well, companies certainly do have recourse. Just imagine, your house has now been broken into. You've been robbed or harm has been caused, what do you do next? You would certainly want recourse. So in the first instance, I would say, do not contaminate the scene, I would say you have the criminal recourse insofar as uh, laying a complaint with the authorities. In other words, uh, laying a criminal complaint, you know, that would entail, for instance, lodging a complaint with the South African police, having the cyber forensics unit of the police investigate the crime. The other recourse that you have is that you would have civil recourse. So in other words, you could institute civil proceedings for any damages suffered. In instituting such civil proceedings, you can also have recourse to other proceedings such as Anton Piller proceedings. Proceedings where you could uh, apply to a court for an order to preserve evidence. We've had examples of cases where clients have had their databases breached. We immediately had a forensic investigator identify the perpetrator. In most instances, we found its former employees who, uh, you know, have some sort of a grudge against the corporate corporation. And once we've identified how the uh, database was breached, when it was breached, etc we would apply to a court for an order to, in order to preserve that evidence. So in, in the example that I'm giving you here is where you would uh, approach a court for relief uh, to seize uh, a, ha- a copy of a hard drive, and you would want to preserve that evidence. So that's just one but example. So the, the, the simple answer to your question, Lisa, is that you do have recourse both in a civil and in a criminal forum.
1: Thank you, Priyash. You've explained the Anton Piller order and seizing um, information or databases. I, I don't know the terminology, but what would the process, what would the criminal reporting process and the civil reporting legal recourse process entail?
6: Thanks for the question, Lisa. It's a very important one. So as Dario would have pointed out, you know the company is in a crisis management mode. It's doing whatever it can to mitigate uh, any any damage, and you know certainly would want to ensure that it's be it's seen to also proceed uh, with with a legal recourse. So for the civil process, you certainly would engage with your lawyer. Uh, you would. You know, if you've identified, you've, you've employed the use of an expert, a forensic cyber expert, for instance, you've obtained a report that identifies, uh, how the breach happened. And if you, for, if you can identify the perpetrator, you certainly can by way of an action procedure or using a summons, you can institute an action for damages. Uh, you can simultaneously, if it's, an, if it's a former employee of the company, uh, who has perhaps sought to steal uh, confidential information, you can invoke the, uh, you know, restraint of trade uh, contract or the the remedies afforded to you in terms of that contract. But 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 the, the the long and short of it is that you you would have to invoke a process whereby you would institute action by way of summons, um, uh, or by way of a court application to preserve that evidence. On the criminal side, Lisa, that's an interesting one because we you know one would again want to use an independent. Uh, forensic uh, expert to, again, provide you with a report, you would simultaneously want to lodge a complaint with the police uh, in order to, to have the police investigate. And I can tell you one thing, those reports go a long way in assisting the police with uh, identifying the perpetrator as well. Now, what, what most companies don't think about, Lisa, is the fact that once this breach happens and where the potential loss or, or damage to the companies more than 100,000 rand, companies are obliged to, in fact, report any theft or fraud uh, in terms of the uh, Prevention and Combating of Corruption Act. Uh, so there's a positive obligation to, in fact, lodge a criminal complaint. Dario earlier mentioned that, uh, you know, you must be seen to be acting uh, positively because of your stakeholders. But in this instance, there's also a positive legal obligation uh, to report. We all aware that sometimes the South African police service, for instance, doesn't have the capacity to be able to investigate. So what, what, what assists and what we as lawyers have found has assisted is that you know, we are able to obtain or procure these reports through experts. Those reports remain privileged. We're then able to assist those clients with a complaint. Uh, If anything else, the client has complied with a positive obligation. And more importantly, if the perpetrator has been identified, uh, you would expect that the police would investigate and a prosecution would thereafter follow.
1: Thanks, Prish. I can imagine that to be able to mobilize a specialist team of experts in the face of a cyber attack or a cyber breach is so important because I can't imagine that many companies are aware of half of what you've told me now.
6: Absolutely Lisa. It points out to a few things, as Warren indicated to you earlier on. Education is of the utmost importance and thereafter, you know, having the proper team assembled around you once the breach has happened. So it would, as Dario pointed out, your communication is important. Having a, an expert legal team is important. The legal team will certainly, uh, you know, have access to the right forensic uh, cyber expert in order to procure that report and would be able to then act as efficiently and, uh, you know, in, in a manner as possible in order to safeguard the, the corporation's interests.
1: Thank you, Presh. Prish, cyber breach is seems to be committed by people that are way underground. What are the prospects of success um, in any legal recourse if you don't know who your attackers are or how this has happened?
6: Well, Lisa, that's the million-dollar question. I mean, you know, if if you're going to have any prospect of success – that would depend on the availability of of evidence, the identity of the perpetrator, and obviously anyone 's appetite for pursuing such processes. You know I would say to you that what 's critical for a company obviously is to again you know go back to basics to not contaminate the seam as if it 's a housebreaking or criminal uh, you know, inv- when you have a criminal investigation done. Make sure you employ an expert who can. For who has got an expert who's got the relevant expertise and who's got the history uh, or experience insofar as dealing with these sorts of breaches. You know, I would always say to multinational companies that it's important to get a credible expert, for instance, to provide you with a report. Uh, and it must be independent. And, and most of the time we have found that in, in our experience, we were able to identify the perpetrator. But, yes, I do agree there are those anonymous uh, hackers out there that that one would have difficulty uh, in finding, uh, but you know legal action, in my view, is very important for two reasons: one, for the uh, reputational management side, as Dario spoke about, two for complying with your positive obligation in terms of the prevention and combating of corruption act, and three, most importantly it 's to certainly avail yourself of that recourse in the event that that perpetrator is identified. You know, we have found in our experience in all of the cyber hack matters we've dealt with, Lisa, we found that they were perpetrated by either a competitor who was seeking some sort of advantage or a former disgruntled employee who was very savvy with IT or in one recent incident, a former director of a company who felt aggrieved uh, that he had been, you know, uh, that he had been asked to leave. Uh, The long and short is that you know if if your prospect of success is much more higher once you identify that perpetrator but to identify that perpetrator you need to obviously run the investigation and you should do it properly with proper expertise
1: thanks so much that certainly gives us food for thought our businesses our brands and our bottom lines depend on the trust we develop with our customers Effectively managing cyber risk is one of the ways to protect all three. Cyber risk is high risk, even riskier now in the global COVID-19 pandemic with everyone caged in physically, but free as birds in cyberspace and potentially very easy prey for opportunistic cyber criminals. Managing this enormous risk has become so much more important. I want to thank Warren, Dario, Carl, Kim, Caroline, Priesh for being here, sharing their expertise and their insights with everybody listening. I certainly find it all very interesting. I hope that you do too. And please stay safe and keep healthy. This has been Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. Our executive producer is Paula Ewens. This podcast is produced for Weber Wenzel by Volume. I'm your host, Lisa Swain, And thank you for listening.
0: You have been listening to Weber Wenzel Legal Insights. You can find and subscribe to the podcast on all major platforms. For more expert legal insights and updates, visit WeberWenzel.com.